0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this very special event. My name is Rachel O'Neill. I'm an assistant professor here at LSE in the Department of Media and Communications. I'll be chairing tonight's event, which marks the launch of a fantastic new book, um, the cover of which you've seen in the auditorium. It's a very exciting new text authored by two esteemed feminist colleagues, Professors Shani Orgad and Rosalind Gill. It's wonderful to be gathered here together in this way. I know for many of us, it's the first in-person event that we've attended in a very, very long time. And it's also great that we're able to host this event in hybrid format and to have an audience joining us online also. Uh, Just a quick note um, for those attending in-person, if you could please keep your masks on throughout the session, we, we would be appreciative of that. Before introducing our speakers, I just wanted to say a few words about the book that we're here to celebrate tonight, which I've had the pleasure of reading in advance. Published by Duke University Press, Confidence Culture interrogates an injunction I'm sure we're all already familiar with, to smile brightly and stride forward, to lean in and take up space, to believe in ourselves so that others might believe in us also. This is a gendered injunction, one that more often than not is addressed to women in whom confidence is assumed to be lacking and for whom confidence is preferred as a solution to myriad problems we face in our homes, workplaces, and indeed on a global scale. In their book, Shani and Roz walk us through various facets of confidence culture and ask us to consider what the exhortation to be confident does politically, culturally, psychically. It is, I think, a deeply ambivalent book, one that recognizes the importance of what confidence may index or afford, the capacity to navigate the world, more or less unencumbered by doubt and insecurity, more or less assured of one's own value and competencies, while also questioning how and why this injunction circulates with such intensity in the current conjuncture. It is a book that takes its object of study seriously without ever ceding its critical vantage point. This for me is an enduring feature of the work of both Shani and Roz, and one that is instructive for all of us who are committed to the project of feminist media and cultural studies. Only recently released, the book is already beginning to shape wider public dialogue and discourse on questions of gender and equality. I know Shani and Ross have spent the last few weeks uh, giving interviews for major publications in the UK and internationally. I'm quite interested myself in what this popular resonance might tell us, whether the book's reception might attest to or hasten the kind of confidence fatigue as it becomes increasingly evident, in no small part through work such as this, to many of us that the attainment of confidence is in no way straightforward. Nor is it a panacea for the enduring inequalities that shape women's day to day lives. To open the event, we'll first have a presentation from Shani and Ross, after which our two panelists will each offer responses of about 10 minutes apiece. We'll then provide for some time for all of our speakers to respond to one another and be in conversation, after which we'll open the floor to questions from the audience, both online and in person. After the event closes, those attending in person are very well- welcome to join us outside. Uh, for a reception which will take place just outside the auditorium. Before I hand over to Shuny and Roz, I'd like to briefly introduce each of our speakers. Shuny Orgad is Professor of Media and Communications here at LSE. An interdisciplinary scholar with a keen ethnographic sensibility, Shuny has published widely across the fields of media and communications, sociology, and cultural studies. She's the author of numerous books, including the truly stellar 2019 work, Heading Home, motherhood, work, and the failed promise of equality. Rosalind Gill is Professor of Cultural and Social Analysis in the Department of Sociology at City University of London. Roz is a truly prolific academic. My own personal endnote library has more references from her than any other <laughs> scholar. And she's the author of such touchstones texts as Gender in the Media, as well as many field defining works on culture and subjectivity in the context of post-feminism and neoliberalism. Pumla Dineogola is joining us via Zoom. She is Professor of Literary and Cultural Studies at the Centre for Women and Gender Studies and Chair in African Feminist Imagination at Nelson Mandela University in South Africa. Pumla has written extensively on the subject of gender and sexual violence and has a new work on this topic currently forthcoming under the title Female Fear Factory, Gender and Patriarchy under Racial Capitalism. Catherine Angel is Senior Lecturer in the Department of English at Birkbeck, University of London. Writing both for academic and much wider audiences, her books include the brilliantly titled Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, published with Verso last year. Please join me now in welcoming our panel as we invite Shani and Roz to give their presentation. Thank you so much, Rachel, uh,
2: for the introduction. Thank you also Pumla, whom we'll see uh, shortly, and Catherine for discussing the book with us and helping us celebrate it uh, being out there in the world. I um, would like to say big thanks for the Department of Media and Communications here at LSE and especially to Luam. Where are you Luam? Yay! <laughs> um, and uh, Hannah uh, from Cities University Gender and Sexuality Research Center um, for helping organize the event. And thank you all for being here both in person, it's really really wonderful to have this in-person uh, event and all of you are joining us online. We really appreciate it. We have so many, many other people to thank that it could take the whole evening. Mm. So we can't mention everyone, but uh, first and foremost, we would like to thank our families, some of whom are are here tonight, Um, and um, of course, friends and colleagues and our wonderful students um, and the amazing uh, feminist community that we are so fortunate to be part of who've shared with us so many confidence culture examples while we were writing the book. Um, and we're also, not least important, a tremendous source of support and inspiration. We'd also like to thank Duke University Press, who've been just nothing short uh, of amazing uh, in terms of their work on the book. And a special, special thank to Asma Iswani. Are you here, Asma? Is she here? Not. Okay, Asma is the artist who did the cover of our book, which we absolutely love. Um, so we'll talk for about 25 minutes, or we'll take it in turn, and then we'll uh, move to our uh, discussions, and there'll be plenty of time for discussions and questions. I'd like to um, echo Shanice's thanks. It really is immensely touching and overwhelming. We're, we're quite emotional. Um, I'm quite excited to be here tonight. Um, we haven't really been out for two years, um, and it's yeah, it's very special. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks to everyone. Um, we want to say a little bit about how we came to write this book. We'd been working across different fields: uh, work in parenting, intimate relationships, body image, global development, and we began to notice the rise of imperatives to confidence and related dispositions, such as resilience and positive thinking, and how they were taking on a new cultural prominence across many apparently unrelated spheres of life. So the welfare system, sex and relationship advice, even international development. And once we've noticed this, It was that classic thing that we started seeing it everywhere. It was in social media. It was in the music industry. It was in workplace culture. It was in love your body um, messages in advertising. And we thought, I wonder if this is just going to be a short-term trend. Um, Is it just that confidence is having a moment? Uh, But several years later, our culture's obsession with confidence, particularly women's self-confidence, shows no sign of diminishing. And in fact, it's really been intensified by the pandemic and now the cost of living crisis. So we situate it as part of a ramping up and visibility of popular feminism that Sarah Bernay Weiser has discussed so compellingly in her book, Empowered. And this is a um, um, very particular kind of neoliberal feminism as Catherine Rottenberg has also written about so brilliantly in her book, the same title. So whenever there's a talk of inequality, we noted there's not far behind noise of confidence. Um, and what we noted was really striking similarity of the messages and the injunctions across quite diverse domains. Um, and you can see the domains here on the slide. And the injunctions were very similar, were about lean in, strike a pose, believe in yourself, boost your confidence, et cetera, et cetera. So the five domains that we located and we kind of identified confidence culture, um, which we decided to focus on, and that the book really mirrors in terms of its chapters, are the body, um, confidence at work in the context of workplace, in relationships, in mothering, and uh, in international development uh, initiatives in the Global South. Now, the paradox across these domains is that precisely as inequalities deepen, precisely as pressures on women get more intense, women are called on more and more to believe in themselves yeah, and to be confident. So for instance, as women suffer profound inequality at work, including significant pay, right, pay gaps, sexism, there's so many workplace schemes that are genuinely designed to promote gender in- equality, but they respond by offering women confidence training, confidence coaching, um, confidence coaches also outside workplace promote workshops, training programs during the uh, pandemic. Both Rose and I attended a few virtually confident workshops to uh, learn how to be confident not just in a crowd but on Zoom. Um, and similarly, at the same time that societal policies following the recession, following the uh, years of austerity, now following COVID. Uh, we know have hit women hard and disproportionately. At that very same time, topping uh, bestseller lists are books that uh, place female self-confidence at their argumentative heart. Or um, as parenting and mothering um, is increasingly squeezed with the uh, kind of withdrawal of the welfare provision, books like How to Become Sorry Not Sorry, Mom becomes uh, best become bestsellers, um, and so while um, oops sorry, while women and girls um, are subjected to intense appearance pressures, um, and they are subjected to unrealistic body ideals, at the, at that very same time, the beauty uh, industry, the fashion industry, calls women to just believe in themselves to wear confidence. That's the best thing that you can wear. And the latest example, many of you may have seen it now on the tube and elsewhere is L'Oreal's new campaign, new, new lipstick campaign, which tells us all women that we're worth it if only we put the shades of conviction, uh, lipstick. So all these examples really uh, triggered us to think, how does confidence culture work? And we want to say very briefly, uh, just to show you uh, the ways in which we identified these works. So, first and foremost, confidence culture is clearly a discourse, yeah? It works through and mobilizes a range of different yet patterned discourses. And time and again, when we were researching for the book, we've been struck not just by the sheer proliferation of different areas of life that we've just discussed, in which the same ideas are um, kind of conveyed, but literally the same words, the same phrases, so things like, are you your own worst enemy? Yeah, Or just believe in yourself. And we found those phrases in a range of examples from advertisements to um, makeup uh, and policy reports or, uh, poly- or workplace programs uh, for women to feel confident. But um, confidence is not just um, a discourse, it's not just a a set of messages, it also materialises as a visual regime, an effective regime, and a set of practices. So starting with the visual, you can see from these images, which are so recognisable from the kind of cultural visual habitat that we occupy that a relatively stable set of images has been developed to convey ideas about female autonomy, female power, capacity, women facing forward, striding out, standing tall. And the four images from the right are images from the Lean in Getty Images collection. But confidence culture also operates in and through emotions, feelings, desires, Injunctions to self-confidence are not just exhortations to speak differently or behave differently. They're also fundamentally exhortations to feel differently about yourself. And this is regarded as the very hardest shift to make. And so what women are advised to do as they're going along towards that goal is to fake it till you make it. And the idea goes that if you perform confidence enough that ultimately those um, confidence markers like assertive posture or assertive speech will eventually generate this internal shift and you will become the confident person that you are currently faking. Not sure if that's going to be personally working out for me. (laughs) Um, The way it's formulated, oh dear, we lost, and it's okay. The way it's formulated in popular culture is very often through sort of loose ideas about um, hormones, neurotransmitters, that if you do this, then your body will be flooded with serotonin or, or dopamine or testosterone. And they're often referred to in a kind of dumbed down language as the happy hormone or the cuddle chemical. I'm actually waiting for them to talk about the confidence hormone. Mm-hmm. It's bound to be, be there. And finally, confidence is also practice. Yeah, It materializes in a huge variety of different practices, ranging from advice uh, uh, on how to generate confidence holding your body, um, to particularly uh, taking quizzes that are meant to measure your confidence quotient, uh, Rose and I scored very high on these. <laughs> um, how to write your emails, how to communicate, how to breathe. The paradigmatic example, which you can see here, is really the whole advice around how to generate confidence by holding your body in a particular way. And that's what we kind of term the confidence pose. You can see how it's repeated across examples. Um, And across all domains, and this is um, Amy Cuddy, for those of you who don't know, this is one of the most popular TED Talks by uh, American social psychologist Amy Cuddy, who tells you that when you prepare for evaluative uh, moments, when you're anxious in the elevator, in the lift, you have to do the Wonder Woman pose, the confidence pose, and speak differently, stop apologizing, write emails differently, breathe differently, stand differently. All these are about different practices through which confidence materializes. And while we didn't investigate it, whether how individuals take up these practices or not, we do use the, cons- the concept of practice in the book to really underscore the potential force of confidence culture in shaping not just how women feel or how they think, um, but literally and practically what they do. So just just before I get on to speaking about the the ambivalence of our own position and our critique, I just wanted to say that taking those four elements together that we've just discussed, so discourse, visual regime, affective regime and a set of practices, we're also trying to make a contribution to thinking about neoliberalism more widely. So we're trying to contribute to um, a growing literature that sees neoliberalism not just as a kind of political and economic rationality, but also sees it as a set of everyday practices which our colleague uh, Jo Littler has expressed so vividly with her wonderful phrase about how neoliberalism insinuates itself into the nooks and crannies of everyday life. Um, and not just individual practices, but also, as we would argue, psychological practices. So we really see this as part of a kind of psychological shift in neoliberalism. Now to just come on to this point about ambivalent critique. Um, We really wanted to take this new common sense of confidence to task, but we want to make clear that our our aim is not to do a takedown of confidence. We're not against confidence per se. I mean, who would be against wanting people to feel more comfortable or happy in their own skin to be more confident? Not at all. Um, It's not a sort of straightforward critique of confidence. In fact, we really want to stress how ambivalent we feel about confidence culture and also that we ourselves are not inured to its kind of emotional and affective force. We've found ourselves moved to tears by, yes, we admit it, by Dove adverts, yes. <laughs> <laughs> by um, accounts of apps that that, by accounts of sort of lack of confidence, by love your body campaigns, by apps that also instill a sense of well being and self belief by equality and diversity programs that really seem to genuinely celebrate women's achievements. And we're also we have to say ambivalent but enthusiastic participants in the confidence culture, for example, we repeatedly encourage our own students to try and take up more space in the world and to not apologize for themselves, to write more assertively, to, you know, slash out those uh, phrases like, I'm just or I'm no expert and I think that and actually be more assertive. So we start really from our own deep sense of being implicated in this culture. It's not just something out there that we can conveniently set ourselves above or beyond. We're, we're, we're part of this. But it's probably because we are part of it that we are so deeply uncomfortable about the way that it increasingly becomes framed as the solution um, to inequality and injustice that how it completely reframes those things in individualistic terms and how it shifts the blame and responsibility for inequality and social injustice away from institutional and, and structural injustices to assume deficits in women. And that's led us to scrutinize it and ask these kinds of questions. And we're just going to um, look at these questions through two case studies. Oh, it's me. Okay. (laughs) So we're going to look first at um, commercial love your body messages, which really do exemplify the confidence culture's status as a discursive, a visual, and an affective regime. From Dove to L'Oreal to Nike, they, um, they center on confidence, on empowerment, on self-belief, on gratitude, as well as having an instantly recognizable set of visual and discursive codes, the kind of glossy diversity, black and white images, minimal but rousing piano music, and above all, the conviction that self-belief is more important than anything else. So these kinds of adverts focus on the production of positive affects, and they, they mark a real shift away from earlier emphases on what's wrong and on the idea that there's something wrong with women, that they need to work on themselves and improve themselves. They're about a kind of superficial body positivity. They're about... Being confident, believing that you're beautiful no matter how you look, remembering that you're incredible, throwing off self-doubt, throwing off insecurity, believing that you can do it, you have the power, you have capacity, and of course, being grateful, gratitude is a key theme. And there's a lot of critiques
3: of LYB,
2: love your body advertising. Um, which we don't have a lot of time to go into very fully, um, but which we build on. So one of the critiques is that at the heart of these kinds of adverts, there are fundamentally a lot of cheats. So there are um, the use of models pretending not to be models. There's the use of Photoshop or di- digital augmentation. Well, this is actually repudiated and the adverts say, hashtag no filter or something like that. Um, There's the fakeness or the hollowness of the diversity espoused in this adverts, the sense that the adverts either claim to be showing much more diverse populations than they actually are showing, or conversely, that they do show greater diversity, but only for that diversity to be actually emptied out and hollowed out of the um, impact. And we discuss this in the book as a dynamic that's um, post-racial, it's post-queer, it's post-feminist. Another common critique of these adverts is that they cynically commodify feminist ideas. And another um, critique is the way that the companies that are most implicated in the toxic messages that produce body insecurity are the very ones taking this up most fervently. So the diet companies, for example, the cosmetic surgery clinics. Our own critiques, they build on these critiques, but um, we also seek to show some other things. So first of all, we, we look at how these love your body adverts really work to trivialize the extent of body pressure on women to treat the pressure as something quite superficial, unimportant, how they tend to downplay the cultural and institutional forces that produce the difficulties with our bodies in the first place, and how they blame women for not being confident enough, treating this as if it's like a self-inflicted wound, some silly piece of self-sabotage. And one advert that is kind of really iconic of this is Gov's Patches Advert, um, which is really quite notorious. I'm sure most of you have seen it. Um, at, in it, we're shown a number of individual women turning up to some kind of laboratory and they're asked if they would like to take part in a piece of research to try on a beauty patch, a revolutionary beauty patch, apparently. Um, it looks like a nicotine patch or a hormone patch. The women put it on their upper arms, they go away, they do um, the video diary and sure enough as the the days pass while they're doing their video diary they all start reporting that they're feeling a little bit better about themselves that I am actually feeling a little bit more confident and those parts of my body that I was particularly ashamed of I don't feel quite as ashamed as I did before and um, then they come back to the lab and the psychologist says to them, would you like to know what's in the product? They all say yes. And then she slides it across the table and we have the reveal moment where she turns it over and it just says one word, nothing. So it's, it, the advert conveys the idea that it's all in women's heads, that there isn't really anything material, anything real, any kind of real sort of cultural, obstacle to confidence that if if, you know wearing a patch that has nothing in it can just transform the way you feel it's up to women themselves to um, do that to undertake that work Um, We now turn to our second example and in the book we have as I mentioned before five domains we just kind of want to give a flavor. Um, The second domain um, that we want to briefly discuss is the workplace and how confidence culture materializes in the workplace and over the last decade and importantly uh, the financial crisis was a really important moment uh, from which uh, we see more and more confidence exhortations. We've seen Proliferation of self-help and advice books. You can see some of them here, but also policy, corporate reports, uh, workplace uh, documents that promote ideas about women's obligations to work on themselves to overcome their confidence so-called deficit. Now, again, in kind of line with what Rose said, and kind of very much in the context of our ambivalence, we do want to recognise that these discussions have been instrumental in putting workplace gender inequality on the agenda. Yeah, So we don't want to dismiss that. But we're also very troubled by the premise of these and many other texts, that there's some kind of a crisis that is peculiar to women. Um, and that's the product of self-doubt and perfectionism, You know, our self-inflicted wounds. Um, and that's what's supposedly holding us women back in public life. And it was striking when we read numerous of these books and these reports, how this crisis refers almost exclusively to women's failure to achieve senior positions in the corporate world of work. Now, however well-intended these texts, many of them are self-proclaimed feminist manifestos, the problem is that they call to women to turn inward, to tackle our own inner obstacles. These are terms that are literally used in these books. Uh, The Confidence Code, which you can see here, a New York Times bestseller by Katie Shipman and Claire and and Kay, they talk about um, our self-inflicted wounds. They talk about how women, we scratch ourselves and that we need imaginary mittens to protect ourselves from scratching ourselves. Um, and, and, And we were really bothered and troubled by not only infantilizing, but the ways in which it turns again the blame onto women. We're doing it to ourselves. And the the kind of call also to instead just embrace positivity, denounce negative feelings and thoughts. And fundamentally what this does is that it turns away from critiques of work cultures, of the workplaces, of the broader structures in society which produce women's self-doubt, and the, those structures that stand in the way that um, of women's progress across different uh, jobs and works. So really strikingly at the very same time of rising precarity, rising inequality, now more than ever after COVID also, when women are being disproportionately affected and injured by recession, by financial insecurity, at that very same time, they're time and again, encourage to harness their individual resources to survive in neoliberalism with resilience and with courage. As um, Sheryl Sandberg puts it in her so-called feminist manifesto, women are called on to internalize the revolution. In other words, to internalize both the responsibility for the problem and the program of action that is required to fix the problem. And we see very similar constructions to the ones we mentioned in uh, self-help and advice books across very different genres. And they're all about the ways in which women are prescribed with strategies and exercises to overcome this supposed internal flaw. Um, In examples like newspaper and women's magazine, which there's frequently tips, five tips to how to become more resilient three tips to uh, to boost your confidence. And so, and as well as these confidence assessment quizzes that we took many of them. Um, it's in apps, there's kind of a booming industry of uh, confidence-related apps that are um, like Shine, Clementine, Sanity and Self, and they all offer, and they're targeting particularly women, and they're offering a set of tools and exercises and daily reminders that are aimed to help um, Women to achieve positive self regard and positive um, self belief. And there's uh, TED Talks like the one mentioned before by Amy Cuddy, um, who uh, kind of uses the image of Wonder Woman and recommends this pose. I don't know how many of you have tried it and if that's the kind of magic solution, probably not. Um, and there's kind of a booming industry of confidence coaches like uh, the one here on the uh, bottom right, just one of many um, that are thriving in really tapping into this um, supposed internal obstacles that women need help with addressing. And the paradox <coughs> is that what's happening is that this, all this kind of work is the, 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 to acquire confidence is contingent on women's conscious and intense labor. So even if if it's about remind yourself that you are beautiful, it's about working on yourself to remind yourself that you're beautiful. So in other words, to gain confidence, women need to work continuously to manufacture it through self-governance, through self-vigilance, through self-improvement. Now, while we were writing and working on the book, during that time, and particularly, in the context of the difficult event of 2020, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, um, in the context of COVID um, and other crises, we, we've noticed a shift which at, at first seemed to kind of unsettle our thesis. Um, and that's what we call the vulnerability turn. And that's a turn towards embracing vulnerability and actually foregrounding insecurity and pain. And paradoxically, in workplace discussions, for instance, more and more there's now rather than just airbrushing insecurity, vulnerability is now the new thing. It's seen as increasingly actually advantageous, uh, even mandatory in some workplaces now to enable confident and successful performance. And again, while it's not only addressed to women, it's very gendered in many, many ways and in the way it's uh, uh, targeting women. So. We have business leaders like David Solomon, the CEO and chairman of uh, Goldman Sachs. We have Tim Cook from Apple. These are all white men who are calling um, on workers to foreground their pain. But we see that often the ones who are taking it up, actually, in the public space are women. And um, that's the idea of vulnerability as a vital asset for success at work. And on the right-hand side, some of you may be familiar with the vulnerability guru, um, Brene Brown, who has now what we call a vulnerability empire really, mm-hmm. um, because she's popularized this idea that being courageously vulnerable at work, that's a quote, is now crucial for companies' health and productivity. And of course, there's numerous celebrity, Emma Watson, one of them, but also Michelle Obama, Melinda Gates, Lena Dunham, Lady Gaga, all confessing now their crisis of confidence and imposter syndrome. Um, And interestingly, LinkedIn is a really interesting platform in this sense, because if only until quite recently, what you would see often uh, mostly on LinkedIn are these polished posts where people would put their best selves because they want to be employable. Now, more and more we see on LinkedIn Very, uh, some very raw kind of posts about vulnerability at work, people highlighting their burnout uh, in the context of, of mental health problems, experiences related to racism, abuse, depression, and so on. So it's as if the ideal feminine professional self is now required to be both confident and vulnerable at the same time. Um, so, as, as we said, when, when, when we started kind of noticing this, particularly around the, uh, 2020, we thought that kind of unsettles our, the whole thesis, the confidence culture is gone. But actually, um, as I, we think kind of this image really encapsulates it, rather than contradictory, this new normative ideal of vulnerability seems to be actually deeply implicated in confidence culture and to bolster it. And just very briefly, we want to say that very much like confidence culture, these calls to vulnerability are further work on ourselves. So now we need to work on demonstrating vulnerability, exhibiting vulnerability at work and in other contexts. And there's very little of any call in the discussions about vulnerability, um, calls to develop community, to invest in structures that are supportive and supportive to women in particular. There's very limited of any discussion of the structural forces of vulnerability, Uh, racism, poverty, ill health, sexism. There's no discussion of collective and structural solutions that are needed or very little discussion to address vulnerability. Again, it's very much through the turning inwards. And uh, as Brené Brown says, embracing vulnerability is all about being seen. So it's performative. Um, So, and and, and crucially, it's not that we can all like lose it now, it's about uh, inhibiting a very um, um, strategic vulnerability um, and controlled. And really importantly, what we notice is that vulnerability is ultimately really a site of privilege. Who can afford to be publicly vulnerable? It's those ones that are often powerful, men or women. And it's often when you're crossed to the other side because um, you've already overcome your imposter syndrome. And now you can go and have a whole interview and tell the world about how you suffered from imposter syndrome precisely because it's securely placed in the past. And crucially, very much like confidence culture and part of confidence culture, it's profoundly gendered. It's women who seem to be the most enthusiastic recipients and kind of demonstrators of uh, this call to embrace vulnerability. So to conclude, we are not against confidence per se, but we are critical of the cultural prominence that confidence has achieved specifically as a supposed solution to inequality and injustice. And we've called confidence a culture because we want to capture something about its dissemination across multiple sites and multiple domains. We also call it a cult, and we call it a cult to capture the way that it's been placed beyond debate. It's become an unquestioned article of faith. And it's particularly targeted at women. So whenever we hear talk of gender inequality, we know the word confidence is never far behind. It blames women for their own insecurities. It exculpates, it lets off the hook. Institutions, organizations, wider structures. It's as if the obstacles are simply in women's heads. They're not the result of anything wider. It systematically trivializes the injuries experienced. It's as if it's just a matter of deciding to feel better, deciding to be more confident, more positive. And it requires psychic and emotional transformation as well as a physical one. It it requires a kind of upgraded form of confidence subjectivity. So it's creating a whole new level of psychologized, punitive regulation of women and more and more work on the self. So the confidence industry tells us, don't challenge an unjust world. Just let's help individuals better cope with injustice by working on themselves. And that's why whenever we hear about gender inequality in mainstream popular politics and popular culture, the word confidence is right there. And we hope that our work begins to challenge this. So we end the book with a chapter, our conclusion book, uh, conclusion chapter is called Beyond Confidence, uh, where we try to explore possibilities, if not to completely move outside confidence culture, because we're uh, implicated in it at least to push against it and to push its boundaries. And it's in this context context particularly uh, where we very much look forward to have uh, both Pumla and Catherine's responses. Um, Pumla's work, uh, which has been really inspiring um, and about particularly how what she calls and describes as a culture of fear um, would be really interested to know and think about how the, the culture of fear corresponds with um, the confidence culture, and particularly also Pumla's call in her book, uh, Female Fear Factory, um, to render this factory strange, to estrange us from this factory so we can perhaps create new ways of living. And Catherine, your uh, wonderful book uh, and your emphasis on ambivalence and on opacity and on not knowing against this kind of uh, um, privileging of self-knowledge uh, about desire is something that we uh, hope and feel there's lots of dialogue and we're very very much looking forward now to hear both of you in dialogue with our book and thank you again for joining us
1: and celebrating with us the book. Thank you so much to Shani and Roz for that fantastic introduction to the book, an overview of some of the key themes and ideas that they set out there. I do want to just draw your attention uh, to the discount code that's available to purchase the book. Um, So via Combined Academic Publishers, um, the discount code is available here. Be sure that you put it in all as one word. You don't need any spaces or anything else. It's just the the one word. Um, I'd also now like to turn to to Pumla, if you could have Pumla brought up on the screen, please. Good evening. Um,
0: It's really good to be here um, talking about... Confidence culture. Congratulations to Shani and Rosalind. I am going to speak about aspects of the book. I won't be. I mean, there's it, 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 I have so much to say um, in response to and about the book, but um, I have ten minutes, so I'm going to be. I'm going to um, be selective in what I pick up. On confidence culture is a designation or and gale give to a phenomenon. They started tracking in 2010, as they noticed it, taking on a new cultural prominence across many unrelated spheres of life. Invitations and formulas for greater confidence, not as isolated instances, but as a magnifying and traveling set of tropes for how women are supposed to appropriately occupy space and live their lives. These scripts, as they've already told us in their presentation, are in self-help books, sometimes in the autobiographies of powerful women in politics and corporate settings, in texts that seek to assist women in the workplace, as well as in texts that offer the promise of parenting in ways free of the pervasive guilt that comes with the patriarchal capitalist mothering script. Collectively, the texts and sites analyzed in confidence culture gesture to a world in which women are free of dis-ease, But as the book shows, such narratives, discursive and visual, not only re-inscribe older, familiar tropes of women as in need of correction and instruction, they also make women responsible for structural inequity. This is because confidence culture narratives reinscribe what used to be called in previous centuries the woman problem which is both a pointer to the problems the world makes for women, and more importantly, women as the problem in wanting, needing, yearning, and agitating for the world to change. Confidence culture holds out the promise of liberation and happiness through confidence, but makes women the problem. through a sophisticated process that Olga and Gill um, unfold A sophisticated process of individualizing a structural problem in order to leave what Derrida calls violent hierarchies unchanged. Here, once individual women find the proper route to confidence and self-love, they have embarked on the path to success. There's a paradox at the heart of the rise of confidence culture that the book points to. Women are bombarded by images of their inadequacy across various arenas from the beauty and diet industries to mediated forms while being pressured to believe in themselves. Here, believing in themselves, having confidence is presented as though it inures women against structural oppression and injustice. It does more, much more than this and holds several dangers, dangers evident when we pay attention to its locations and masking forms. Orgut and Gill write that, and I'm quoting them here, yeah, that these exhortations have become ubiquitous across so many domains of social and cultural life, and with such striking homogeneity, that they've come to constitute a kind of unquestioned common sense. End of quote. One reading of their book there is of a project of rendering confidence culture, its architecture, and its specific deployments of Bucot's technologies of self uncommon sense. To do so requires unbundling confidence culture into the confidence imperative, the confidence cult, and examining the sites of their amplification. A confidence imperative and confidence cult are formulations um, within the book. While the confidence cult targets different genders, the authors tell us, there are notable ways in which women are its intended audience, subjects, and targets. Whereas men's confidence culture offers invitations to take up leadership, top performance, greater control of the self and world, and increased status. Women's confidence cultural invitations are corrective of emotion, of body, and of self. Here, women are cast as lacking, deficient, excessive, or diminutive. For men, women, and other genders, confidence culture holds out a promise of arrival at happiness and success. For women specifically, it mediates relationships to power in ways that echo older patriarchal regimes and systems we have seen elsewhere. As a contemporary 21st century phenomenon, confidence culture As a contemporary 21st century phenomenon, confidence culture draws from circulating critical discourses and radical movements from times past and current and current in superficial ways. For example, it appears to take the calls for wider representation and widening representations and structural transformation seriously, insofar as we see selectively a wide array of bodies and bodies as identities in many, in many advertisements analyzed in the book. Superficially then, as the subjects of confidence culture are differently abled, Raced, embodied, it gestures to a creation of a world that is already changed. As I read example after example detailed here to track the scale of the phenomenon in the book, I was reminded of Gayatri Spivak's illumination of the ways in which hegemonic power has long mutated in these ways. In the 1990s, Spivak argued that the center incorporates aspects of the language and symbols of radical movements in order to better survive by projecting the mere appearance of change. Spivak, Spivak was writing of specific 19th and 20th century colonial logics. olga and Gill are writing of a 21st century articulation that produces what they call the neoliberalizing of subjectivity and remaking of feminism along neoliberal lines. This is because many of the sites of confidence culture opportunistically reference established feminist critiques on patriarchal policing and disciplining of women's bodies and psyches, as well as numerous global radical critiques, post-colonial and decolonial calls, without any of the accompanying changes in concrete historical material conditions. In other words, they never move beyond the gesture In the examples chosen by the authors of how confidence culture articulates in framing women's proper place in the workplace, although unexamined and unengaged here, there are echoes of the kinds of feminine disciplining that feminist scholars of respectability politics have also taught us. As the authors argue, the the authors of confidence culture argue, the rise of confidence culture at a time where there is also increased global public discussion of a mental health crisis is not accidental. It is not a contradiction, it is not accidental. It is, it, it, this is because confidence culture itself emerges out of and in the aftermath of a context in which Freud, psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis more broadly and Maslow's work take on mass appeal and circulation permeating the world, not just of the academy and of of psychology as a discipline, but traveling predominantly into the popular cultural through the foregrounding of working on the self. I found additional resonance with some of the arguments on the slipperiness of the framing of the worlds of women's work from equality to empowerment. In my own work, on the mediated discourses of women's empowerment post-apartheid within the constitution of what I call the New South African woman between 1994 and 2000, as well as in my 2013 book, A Renegade Calls in P. Um, exploration of the Price of Women's Successful Visibility, I was working with a different geographical terrain, Southern Africa, rather than ogaden and Gills, U.S., U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. I argued there, one of the strategies through which shifting pro-feminist legal and policy interventions were met and undermined through first was first through the replacement of equality and feminism or even women's rights with women's empowerment narratives which highlighted women's power in the workplace while requiring trade-offs in the domestic space. In other words, the appearance of equality was important only in terms of what was publicly demonstrable, confidently, visibly, publicly, as increasing numbers of black and white women moved into position of power post-apartheid. At the same time, however, such women often were required to provide some narratives that ran counter to the public workplace power they held. Often in interview after interview, they would have to declare that they may run companies, but they went home and took care of their husband. The phrase, I'm not a CEO at home, proudly articulated by women who held high positions, by women who also employed domestic workers who run their own homes and therefore did not need to take on additional domestic labor at home, seemed to signal something else. It was what the signal about women's power as conditional that interested me. Um, and so I found particular resonance between this conditional power, this conditional claim to power, this, um, this temporary um, claim to power and access of power, the slipperiness of power um, that Orgut that, that and Gill uh, outlined in, 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 in the ways in which vulnerability functions in the workplace and the discourse of vulnerability after of Brene Brown. Um, with this earlier um, articulation that I had um, also um, studied. So I found, you know, found um, continuities and perhaps um, synergies, um, even as we're working across very different times and, and studying different phenomena. The second equally striking um, matter for me was on vulnerability, or their reading of vulnerability after Brene Brown and its migrations to else to elsewhere she may not have anticipated. Or vulnerability rather than an. I'm sorry, let me read that again. <laughs> On vulnerability after Brene Brown and its migrations to elsewhere she may not have anticipated. olga and Gill argue that rather than reading this move as antithesis of confidence culture. Um, it is part, it is implicated in, in confidence culture. But it more, so, more than this, it has sparked a different regime of visibility to show imposter syndrome, like the soft feminism of the essay or the empowerment of women's woman's empowerment of the corporate, South African corporate women, only in order to overcome it. Vulnerability is that, is that which such women can or must choose to show. It matters only when rendered visible. But this is a visibility regime only available to powerful women and some men. This is because there's no currency for vulnerability at work for many women across the world who are confronted by stereotypes of women as already always overly and inappropriately emotional, especially in the workplace. Even for powerful women, this revelation resembles obligatory exposure as one of the current conditions of retaining power. What I wrote off as feeding bits of yourself to the machine in order to be taken seriously and indefinitely postponed being rendered as train wreck, which is how excessive vulnerability is often codified for women. Vulnerability in Orgad and Gill following Brown, or critiquing Brown, is importantly, and perhaps most dangerously, a solitary project that is to be waded through, to use Brown's language, and one that can be overcome once we clarify, again, using Brown's language, the story we tell ourselves. The implication that a different story leads to a different reality. Once we tell, once women tell themselves a different story, the world changes. But of course, we know this is not true. Emotion, vulnerability included, we know also is raced and classed as the scholarly activist and public discourses of more than a century um, has taught us as the, 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 the scholarly activists and public discourses of angry Black women or angry Latina women and white women's tears also continue to teach us. And this has implications for the intersections of rather, of vulnerability and confidence culture rather than frictions between vulnerability and confidence culture. In Orgard and Gill, the compelling argument of vulnerability culture working in line with rather than against confidence culture made these connections quite clear. It also made me question the specific, their specific choices about the historicization of the phenomenon in ways also resonant with. Dina Ligaga's work on how women become visible. In other words, the specific ways in which women enter visibility in media and popular texts, not as individuals, and what we gain when we examine how contemporary forms of making women visible through discourses of problem, success, or diversity rely on citations from older and longer histories and traditions of inscription. In their bodies chapter, It is clear that although the kinds of visible bodies change, the lessons about how to matter and believe you matter remain the same. Even fat positive bodies have to make confidence claims. Even in areas of attempted circumvention, I'm thinking, for example, of something like the Fenty Foundation adverts rather than the Fenty lingerie adverts. They are interpreted in, in these ways. And so it seems that the ambivalence is not only guides and Gills, but that even um, as, as hopeful as their final chapter is, um, that, that, that perhaps even those attempts to circumvent um, confidence culture, um, when referencing confidence, which, which, which they helpfully uncouple from confidence culture, so confidence is part of confidence culture, but confidence culture, um, as they explain in their presentation and as they so meticulously outline in their in 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 the, in, in their book is something very different. It's a cluster or it's a regime um, of, of means, a structure of meaning. So it seems to me that not only does only does confidence culture work as a cult, it also becomes an interpretative lens for all expressions of confidence, even when they're not confidence cultish. And all expressions are spatial claims by women. What then are the ways in which different feminist traditions can engage with each other as they theorize similar phenomena from different locations and times? I've offered a few um, thoughts and provocations on confidence culture, which is an important study that illuminates a specific sociocultural and economic phenomenon and an important contribution to contemporary feminist scholarship and contemporary British and US um, feminist cultural studies. Congratulations again to Professors olga and Gail.
2: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? or Can We Afford the Super Rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
1: Thank you very much. From there now, I invite like Catherine to for remarks.
2: <laughs> I'm really delighted to be here. Um, so thank you for inviting me to speak. I'm delighted, not least, because um, I read um, Roz and Shani's article from 2015, mm-hmm. I think. Um, while I was writing my book, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again. And it really, it crystallized something for me in such a helpful way. So what I thought I would do is just talk a little bit about parts of my book that intersect with um, with the work. So um, I started writing Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, more or less um, around the time of me too and the kind of resurgence of discussions about harassment and coercion, um, and power relations particularly between men and women and I was really noticing in the wake of Me Too that there was a really obviously very important reiteration of the importance of consent and it struck me that this reformulation or kind of re-emphasis on consent urged self-knowledge about our sexual desires and clear expression about those sexual desires know what you want and learn what your partner wants, the New York Times told us. Good sex happens where those two agendas meet. Have the conversation, we were told by Radio 4, the direct honest conversation about sex before you're in the bedroom. Have it in the bar, the cab home, even if it's awkward. 10 years before that, um, Rachel Bustle Kramer had told us that as women, it's our duty to ourselves and our partners to get more vocal about asking for what we want in bed. So, women must speak out, we're told, and they must speak out about what they want. So, they must then know what it is that they want. As I read these formulations, that in one sense were gratifying to me, of course, there can be uh, no end to conversations about consent and what counts as good sex and bad sex. I also felt kind of uncomfortable because I wondered if it really is my duty to look inside myself and fish out my desire that lies in wait inside me and come as if armed with that knowledge to sex, armed with it presumably so that there is no confusion, no mixed signals, no misunderstandings, no awkward moments that will be recast later, re-experienced later as bad sex or assault. So in writing the book, I wanted to articulate a critique of consent that would do justice to my mixed feelings. And I want to be clear, consent is vital, it's crucial, it's, the very, it's just the bare minimum for sex. And legally, I think that affirmative consent is the least bad standard that we have for a law on sexual assault. But I talk in the book about what I call consent culture, which I use to mean the idea that this legal notion of consent is the concept and the side that will help us to resolve the very many sexual ills of our culture. And it's that position that makes me uncomfortable. Why does it make me uncomfortable? Because addressing women in this way, know yourself, be confident, reveals I think a fundamental tenet of neoliberal feminism, which is that essentially we have to undertake risk management. So like the rape prevention campaigns that address women as if they must be in perpetual preparation for the inevitable fact of sexual violence, they must responsibly manage the risk that already exists out in the world. Rhetoric around consent can sometimes be closer to that kind of preventative discourse that addresses women primarily than it would like to think. So the mode of addressing women's subjectivity admonishing them, enjoining certain ways of being on them, deflects, I think, the question of how to prevent sexual violence and places it onto individual women and the ways in which they have to manage that day by day, night by night in their own individual lives. Within some of the rhetoric around consent, the ideal individual who manages this risk responsibly is a vehemently confident sexual subject who knows herself, who speaks confidently of her desires. And the burden of bad sex, if not assault, falls on her. But if she fails, if she fails to fulfill that ideal, who then is to blame for a sexual encounter gone wrong? So what I wanted to point out is that in some of the very well-meaning and important uh, rhetoric that we have, discourse that we have about consent, there's a kind of wishful denial of reality. The relentlessly upbeat tones of some of these exhortations about being the confident woman who can say what she wants clearly, don't really amount to much given what we know, given that we know that it can be hard for women not just to say no to sex, because saying no to sex can sometimes lead to um male anger and humiliation and violence but because saying yes can be difficult saying yes to what you want or asserting your own desire can be difficult because we live in a punitive culture for women in which we are shamed and punished for precisely the thing that we're exhorted to do for expressing our desire so we're often punished for the very positions we're being urged to embody in the rhetoric around your confident self to the bedroom. We know that evidence about women's pasts inevitably comes up whether implicitly or explicitly in the courtroom. Casual sex, hookups, count heavily against women in rape trials. You can't be raped it seems by someone you met on Tinder, by someone presumably you met out of a confident desire for sex. Once a woman is thought to say yes to something, she tends to be seen as being able to say no to nothing. Sarah Ahmed said that sometimes the repetition of good sentiment feels oppressive. Might we be looking in the wrong place when we pin our emancipatory hopes on the clear expression of desire? And not just because of these dynamics that I'm talking about about a misogynistic culture that punishes us for sexual assertiveness, but also perhaps because there's something in the nature of desire itself to resist being known and articulated in the ways that is urged upon us. While I was trying to articulate these thoughts, I came across the 19, uh, 1915, <laughs> 2015 article by Shani and Roz on confidence culture, and I found it so illuminating. And it really crystallized something for me about this sensibility that they talk of, confidence as a kind of ethos a culture, a feeling, a structure, a feeling that permeates so many realms of discourse and experience. They captured so beautifully the admonitory, exhortatory tone of some of the con- consent discourse as I was encountering it. It's our duty. Consent can be sexy. They captured the kind of incantatory nature of these um, these feelings that we're encouraged to embody and experience. And they captured so beautifully the way in which women are seen as held back in the realm of sexual violence as well, not just in the realms that um, we've touched on so far, not by structural forms of inequality and injustice, but by their own failure to be sufficiently confident. Woe betide women then if they fail to be sufficiently confident to assert the risk that they're required to avoid. So when I was thinking about um, Confidence Culture from their um, 2015 article, and also thinking about Angela McRobbie's work on post-feminism, I came to feel that it was actually no accident that the reformulation of consent, the very important reformulation of consent in affirmative terms, and then also as enthusiastic, took root in the 90s, the kind of arch decade of post-feminism. So the post-feminism that McRobbie talks about as a mode in which young women can come forward on the condition that feminism fades away. To be clear, again, affirmative consent um, was such a huge reframing of how we think about sex between men and women in particular, because it emphasized mutuality, reciprocity, the fact that we should all be interested and whether the person we want to have sex with wants to have sex with us. I mean, it's not a big ask, but it was actually a major shift in our legal <laughs> and cultural thinking, which in itself is quite depressing. But something of the insistence that I think of as particularly post-feminist, namely that in the name of sexual equality, women must be assertive and declamatory and unashamed, found its way, I think, into the affirmative consent Better it. So we slid from a position where of course women should be afforded sexual freedom, should be able to declare their desires freely, they should be able to be lustful and perverse and up for it. So an insistence that they are and that they must be so for their own safety. The fetishization of confidence is all around us um, as um, confidence culture delineates of so forensically. One of the things that I wrote about in my book was about certain very pro- prominent critics of consent. So I'm thinking of people who've written these, you know, very contested, very interesting to me, very troublesome books, Katie Voifey, Laura Kipnis, but also the journalist Barry Weiss, who admonished Grace, the, um, the author of an article detailing her unpleasant night with the comedian Aziz Ansari. And in these books, in these critiques of consent, these writers invoke an ideal of of the confident woman who can shrug off the injuries, who can fight these pushy men off. It's called bad sex, wrote Vice. It sucks, stand up on your own two legs and walk out of the door. So for these critics, the culture of consent and guidelines and laws around affirmative consent cast women as timid, as fearful, as perpetually injurable and they recoil against this, and in, and in, in the place of that injurable woman, um, idealise the figure of the confident woman who can deal with it all. This is not my position, my position is that consent rhetoric positions sexual uncertainty as abject, and consent rhetoric tends to cast the ideal woman as the one who can, in speaking her desire with confidence, manage the risk of a violence that we must accept as always already existing. This sets women up to fail and to be punished for gendered and racialized dynamics of power that are not theirs to shoulder alone and not theirs to resolve alone, privately. Responses to rape culture should not be prioritized. I want to thank Shani and Roz for their brilliant work that helped me think through the past few decades and the present and help me put my finger on what felt so puzzling and thorny and difficult in my own work. And I thought of them as sort of companions in my thinking that I was really delighted to kind of be able to have in in my text and in my thinking, because it's difficult to articulate the critique of consent. It feels very risky and doesn't want to play into the hands of people who critique consent in order to dismiss the very real, persistent injuries that people encounter in the realm of sex. And just as Shani and Ros emphasise, the way that encouraging individual confidence can be an important and very moving endeavour, given that women have been made to feel so relentlessly vulnerable and self-doubting and injured, I also try to acknowledge that it is understandable to invoke confidence in our sexual ethics and our politics as a solution to violence. But this is a bind, because it redoubles the burden on us to find ways of navigating the violent, that violent world. And I think that we should aim higher. And a critique of, of a neoliberal confidence ethos is one of the very important ways we can do that. And for that reason, I think this work is hugely important to articulate the bind that we find ourselves in. And I urge you to buy the book <laughs> to read it. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Thank you, Catherine, for that wonderful response to the book. I'd like to invite Tony and Roz, if you'd like to, to say I'm anything in response, or shall we go because, to questions? Yeah, I don't know. Sure? Yeah. Okay, can we take um, questions from the floor, please? If anyone would like to raise their hand?
3: We'll also be taking questions from our online audience. Um, Hey, thank you very, very much. Um, I, uh, yeah, there's so much to say about this book. Um, but I'd like to ask a question about, about the transformation of, and, and the kind of metastasizing of the confidence cult as, as you, as you term it. So I'm really struck by how, um, Sheryl Sandberg's lean in invocation has, has really migrated, um, beyond the C-suite that she was talking about. And, and I was wondering if, uh, you know, in the sense that, that this idea, this invocation to lean in, it's, it's kind of been democratized. Um, every woman now needs to lean in. Um, and so I wonder if you could share with us any examples that you found in your work of, uh, of, of the confidence cult at work uh, with working class women who are arguably those kind of hardest hit by, by neoliberalism's um, kind of structural assaults. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm just wondering if you could share some of that. Thank you. You want us to answer or to tell you? Sure,
2: go ahead. So I think, first of all, thank you for the question. Um, I think, you know, first of all, there's wonderful work, uh, for instance, by Tracy Jensen and her colleagues. Um, And they've looked at how, um, within the context of the welfare um, and it's kind of withdrawal, um, there are programs for working class and poor uh, parents and particularly mothers around resilience and confidence. Um, So it's, you know, these are programs that are being rolled as supposedly the solution to responsibilize um, working class and poor, particularly, uh, again, women, uh, often single mothers, um, and these discourses, we haven't, you know, we, we draw on others works like Tracy Jensen's work um, in this context. Um, and um, we notice it, for instance, in an uh, unemploy- in, in employment center, in, in the context of uh, unemployment, there's kind of these, these discourses are recited, variations and iterations of them. So. Um, there's a kind of a the the idealized um, woman who takes on and and demonstrates the confidence is very often middle class, upper middle class white woman. Um, But the way the discourses often kind of travel um, is to address um, with to address other women across class and across Um, Ethnicity and, you know, disability is another uh, area where we've seen and both can say more about the ways in which uh, these kind of discourses, but also practices and the affective burden um, is being without any consideration, and without actually recognition of the fundamental structural huge differences. So it's again, it's this one size fits all um, solution yeah um thanks very much for the question and i yeah and I, I just wanted to comment on your term metastasizing which i think is just a wonderful term in this and it really resonates with what Pumna was saying as well about how it this sort of traveling nature of this discourse um and i just wanted to refer to lynn friedley's work um, and she's written it by the co-author and i can't remember their name, but it's a fantastic paper. And it's about the British welfare system and about how um, job seekers now have to demonstrate not only that they're looking for work actively, but that they have a positive mental attitude. And that positivity is a requirement of uh, being able to claim the benefits. I think that's a vivid
1: example. Absolutely. Can we take another couple of questions together from the floor? So we have one here. And then this question over here, please. We'll take two together and then we'll get one from online.
3: Thank you so much. Love the talk. And having being a corporate employee, I know how much the onus is on yourself to enhance your confidence and resilience. So uh, My question is that in in your work, have you come across examples and studies of how women have also started believing that it's their problem versus it's systematic inequalities or how other genders also believe that it's a problem of women versus systematic inequalities?
4: Um, Thank you so much for that. I absolutely love your body of work, all of you. Um, so my question is, while in the West, the discourse is around post-feminist sensibilities that are tied to neoliberalism, that of course, Professor Gill so wonderfully articulates in all her work, uh, when you move to the global South, especially from in the context that I worked in, in gender and education, um, the girls, uh, we worked around how confidence is a, like a, more of a male quality And when we try to think about how storytelling and reading can, you know, help girls be more confident, what we didn't anticipate is when girls are moved from uh, an all-female setting and they occupy a space that even boys are around, this confidence that girls have newly built is met with resistance by uh, men. And when I think about this, even in the workplace and even in a global setting, how do we navigate around, you know, these the structures of patriarchy, the forces of which are so powerful that while women learn to be confident, express themselves confidently, are met with resistance from men who simply, or uh, you know, people who simply don't move beyond uh, that and embrace it, just like you know, the women. So, would you like to respond to these two very
3: interesting
1: questions? yeah and
2: um, thanks uh, so much for that question and um yeah I, I you've pointed to something really important which i think is kind of almost like a reception study of this work is just sort of like yes we've we've demonstrated the discourses exist we've demonstrated hopefully quite persuasively that there is kind of a confidence culture but how is that actually being taken up and do women take it on and believe themselves to um be lacking confidence or or are there sort of resistance re- resistant senses and i think you know that in one sense we don't fully know and we would love to do a reception study we would absolutely love to see how these discourses are being taken up negotiated resisted in different contexts by different women and yet on the other hand i would say that we can just see from the sort of things like the proliferation of confidence coaching and the sheer num you know, Shani mentions that we've been on a couple of kind of courses ourselves as part of researching the book, the sheer numbers of these, these courses that are sort of mushrooming, the sheer numbers of women that are, are attending them and then and kind of locating the issue as a personal deficit or defect that they have to overcome, I think, does give an indication that there is at least, you know, some resonance, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if I, uh, if I kind of heard your question also, you, you kind of asked about the difference uh, between the, the ways in which confidence is addressed to men and women, is that right? Or not, or the kind of the gender, the- uh... <laughs> I asked that
4: I not also believe that it's a women problem. Right. Uh, so is that, a... yeah, that is a getting invited
2: by by the people as well. Yeah, okay. Um, Maybe we can move to the also other question. Um, We didn't mention it because we didn't have enough time in our talk, but our um, fourth, we have different domains and one domain was the Global South where we actually looked at the ways in which we call this confidence without borders, yeah? After Medecins Sans Frontières and then after Beauty Without Borders, which which was this kind of a, very strange um, um, school that was built um, in kabul um, to um, diffuse and disseminate uh, this kind of ideas ideas and ideals around beauty um, and we look precisely at examples that you know you mentioned and how initiatives in the global south are kind of circulating and this, these imperatives um, and we draw their own works of Silver, Silver roy and other, um, kind of um, a variety of um, examples also to discuss this but I think also what you mentioned kind of ties in neatly with what uh, Catherine spoke about in the in the way that the very thing that women and girls are being exhorted to embody and to take on is what they seem to be also penalized for and where they and, and that seems to be resisted um, you know so the, the kind of common example in lots of workplace contexts is that when women are displaying confidence they're considered to be bitch or bossy or and so on and similarly what you said is is this kind of double bind in the very thing that we are kind of encouraged to possess uh then comes to haunt us um but uh, but I think very much also in line Catherine and I I want to say more about it, is, yeah. is how do we deprivatize it? How do we kind of get out of this cycle that it is just our personal work and responsibility and duty to take it on? Because also the resistance we then experience is personal and it hurts. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think, you know, that that bind, that, that difficulty is also what makes writing about this kind of material really tricky because you know, you're articulating a critique of confidence culture in the full awareness that, you know, there are plenty of women for whom increasing their confidence might help them at the same time as that injunction is being used as a way to like defang any kind of political critique of the workplace or, you know, gender or or whatever. So it's sort of, you know, it puts one in a very precarious position critically. And, you know, that happens certainly with the consent material as well. And, um, I suppose, you know, that's the nature of a bind. <laughs> what can you do? I was wondering, maybe, Pumla, if you mm-hmm. wanted to come in here, particularly because uh, your kind of also South African previous book that kind of also focused on the South African context might have resonance with the last question. I, mean, I think
0: that where I really want to come in is, is I mean, one of the things that I find incredibly, I mean, the book is remarkable, but one of the things that I found incredibly useful was the very important way in which you make a distinction between obviously um, not just being seduced and believing in, and, but, 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 but actually being supportive of, of, of the idea of um, confidence, but still being able to be critical of confidence culture. And I think, I think, I think it's a very important distinction And I think you make it very well in the book, right? Because I think that part of why confidence culture is so seductive is that it pretends to be the same thing as confidence. And so while as a feminist, obviously we, as as, as feminists, we cannot, well, I don't know if we can, I doubt we can. um, we We cannot really be in favor of a world that continues to break women down psychically. Right. So confidence, there is value in confidence. And there is a reason why we also subscribe to a to the value of confidence, the value of of, of, you know, even old fashioned forms of kind of um, consciousness, consciousness raising by implication um, had recognized the value of kind of internal effective psychic, psychological, psychological transformation and and work. But of course, the difference between that. Investment in confidence itself, um, and confidence culture is that the, the older fashioned um, investment is in is in is in the recognition that that confidence can be transformative, um, and that that that, 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 that 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 the attainment of confidence is not an end in and as of itself. That women are not the problem. That perhaps confidence then perhaps enables. I don't know, enables women to better be able to do um, and, 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 and mobilize and imagine um, the kind of collective, structural, systemic change that we, that, that we need. Whereas confidence culture is the opposite of that. And I think, I mean, we, we, we sure, certainly, I think as, 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 fam- as, 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 as feminist scholars, we, we also are aware that there's a long tradition of this, right? I mean, there's a long tradition of kind of co opting um, radical language, of co opting feminist language um, and, and, and in order to mask something that is actually kind of dangerously anti, 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 anti women. And so I think that um, as I continue to talk about, about your book, for me, I'm going to continue go, returning to that distinction because I think it is absolutely integral. Um, that distinction between confidence and confidence culture, right? So so that's 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 really what I want to um, speak to. And I think you do it, you know, superbly in, in, in the book. So that's why I, yeah, I think. Um, and then I saw, I wanted, I don't want to answer that question. I wanted to speak to another question that's in the comments. Um, and someone has asked, sorry, you can't see the comments. I don't know when they're going to be read to you. I see, obviously, I have a bias to the people who, um, <laughs> that are online, because I'm online.
1: <laughs> uh, we have two questions that Norma selected for us that she's going to read out from the online, but hopefully one of them will be your choice.
0: So there's a question about Lisa. Um, and I think that um, I just wanted to say there's a question about Lisa, where's the confidence about LISO? Um, which I thought was um, fantastic because your entire final, I mean, not your entire, but Lisa is a big part of the final of your, of your final chapter. So I'll just read this question from, from Beverly Thomas. What do you think of people like Lisa's body confidence? I have a lot of concerns as a fat black woman myself. This promotion of own your body image rather than claiming a healthy lifestyle is dangerous. And I believe it encourages poor dietary choices and can lead to high blood pressure and diabetes. But I've noticed if you criticize this approach, one is accused of fat shaming. Please let me know your thoughts, and I thought that the way in which you read um, Lizzo um, sometimes ambivalently and sometimes obliquely um, in, in, your, in, your, in your final chapter was quite was quite um, was quite um, productive. So maybe you two want to say a little bit about 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 why Lizzo, as opposed to some of the other people that you obviously don't find as useful to use in that in that in that chapter. Should we
1: take the question we about Lizzo? Do you want to take okay. this and we'll, then we'll take one more. Okay. Two more for, one more from Lauren. <laughs> well, to start with, we love
2: Lizzo. Uh, my kids are here, so they know I dance Zumba to Lizzo. <laughs> um, but uh, on a more serious note, I think, you know. first of all, we, we felt that to write a book about confidence culture without Lizzo is just impossible. She's been dubbed the self-love, self-confidence queen. Um, but we also, as, as Pumla very generously uh, pointed out, we, we, we kind of thought with Lizzo uh, in our last chapter, which is entitled Beyond Confidence, um, to show how she's an exemplar of, uh, she embodies in many ways everything we talked about in terms of confidence culture, um, and um, also problematically in many ways in that it's very highly commercialized and commodified, But we also point to ways in which she actually pushes against, if not completely outside confidence culture, she does push against. For instance, Lizzo, um, in all her mediated appearances, in our interviews, on our Instagram, time and time um, emphasizes how she's dependent on a, a whole body of people who work and support with her. She's one of the only artists who travels to all her tours with her family and with her close friends. And she talks a lot about the need for support and for interdependence. So it's very much against this kind of myth of the resilient, dependent, lack of kind of uh, needing support, confident woman. Um, Obviously in in the most uh, important ways she is she, she says she has a, an interview where she says I am in myself I am the revolution you know I am revolutionary in that she does radically divert from the normative kind of ideal uh white slim upper middle class uh uh woman who kind of uh, embodies a lot of these kind of uh, debates and there's other ways that we kind of Um, recognize Lisa for the ways that she, again, doesn't kind of complete turns confidence culture on its head and in many ways she feeds it and and, and she's very much kind of embodying it. Um, But she also offers really interesting ways that are um, um, highlighting, she highlights the labor that confidence takes. She talks a lot in her interviews, again, on our uh, many platforms, She she talks about how much work it takes to become confident and to love yourself something that is completely masked in many
1: uh, of the other examples that we've looked at. Okay, we'll take one final question from Luan, who's reading from online. So
2: this is an online question from from Stefania, a student
3: in London. How can women escape the confidence loophole in the workplace? (laughs) Big question. Well, <laughs>
2: to start with, I think all the words that have been used, I think picking up on your word deprivatizing needs to be deprivatized. Um picking up on what Pumla said about it needs to be collectivized, it needs to be about um, collective resistance, it needs to be politicized. I think that you know starting to critique it critique the insidious ways that gets inside us and that we start to believe ourselves to you know have a confidence deficit as being the main thing that's holding us back rather than capitalism um is is a good start um yeah yeah and i would add to cite uh roses one of the title of one of many of roses articles let's
1: get angry again (laughs) I think that's probably quite a good note to end on. So all that reminds, remains is for us to thank our panellists, thank uh, Shani and um, Raz for a wonderful presentation and introduction to your work and congratulate you again on this fantastic book.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.